Hello and welcome to the voice of the people. I'm your host, Kenneth Mari Sr. I love enough to tell you the truth and I respect enough to give you the facts. I want to thank you for joining us this evening. Um, it's our intent to give you information, to have a conversation, uh, talk about stuff that other folks don't talk about. It. We feel that the yoke has been broken on this end. And so we dare to tell you the truth and give you the facts. This show is sponsored by Myers Law, Attorney Catherine Myers at 803-250-1176. She's specialized in criminal law. So if you need to get lawyered up, you call the Legal Eagle at 803-250-1176. I want to talk to you this evening about something that's very important. As we witness every day violence towards black men, it's being inflicted by police officers. So we understand the history of this. We understand that we're the victim of this and we understand that we need criminal justice reform. But I want to take it down a level. I want to talk about our children. I want to talk about policing schools. They continue to target black, brown, indigenous students with disability. The data has proven this across the country. Communities are pushing their schools to divest funding from police and reinvest those funds in student mental health care and other supportive services. But in making their case and their respective school boards, these parents, students, and advocates, and ministers and community leaders, they run into one significant barrier, outdated data and transparency in policing in schools. Every other year, the Department of Education collects and eventually releases to the public data that shows the number of student referrals and arrests made by police, including resource officers, we call them SROs, in public schools, and which students are most impacted. This data includes the student's age, gender, race, and whether they have a disability. Time and time again, this data has shown students of color students with disability are disproportionately referred to and arrested by police in school. The data also includes staffing data detailing how many counselors, social workers, school psychologists, and nurses are in school compared to law enforcement officers, which we call school resource officers. This data is crucial for understanding how police in school have fueled school to prison pipeline. All this is a powerful situation that needs to be talked about. The Department of Education has been collecting arrests and referral data for the last 10 years through the Civil Rights Data Collection. A collection may have administered since 1968. You can get that information if you so desire by using the Freedom of Information Act. But let's talk about the impact of policing on our disability, our disabled students, students of color, and disabled students of color. If historical trends in the data hold true, law enforcement in schools will continue to disproportionately target students of color and students with disabilities and students of color with disabilities. Black students and students with disabilities 
I've often had to attend schools with fewer resources and support and school staff that are often not adequately trained or staffed to accommodate children with disabilities. When there are no other support staff to address behavior problems, some teachers request help from law enforcement. This is where things often go wrong. Police schools do what they're trained to do, to detain you, to handcuff you, and to arrest you. Past data analyzed by the ACLU shows that schools with police reported 3.5 times as many arrests as schools without police. Just as with the concentration of policing in low-income communities of color, policing in schools is also racialized. We took a report, it's called Cops and No Counselors, and we analyzed the data. We found that students of color are more likely to go to a school with a police officer, and they're more likely to be referred to law enforcement and more likely to be arrested at school. On the national level, black students are more than twice as likely as their white classmates to be referred to law enforcement. Black students are three times as likely to be arrested as their white classmates. And in some states, black girls are over eight times as likely to be arrested as white girls. This is a problem in our community. What makes a child most likely to be targeted by a police officer while in school? That's a good question. Well, simply, by having a disability. Overall, students with disabilities were nearly three times more likely to be arrested and referred than students without disability. This is bad. If a child has a disability, and they're also a student of color, the odds are even far worse. For instance, in Rhode Island, Native American students were referred to law enforcement at a rate five times that of the national average. Black and Latino boys with disability represent only 3% of students nationally, but they account for 12% of school arrests. Black boys are more often labeled as emotionally disturbed or simply bad. When non-compliant behavior occurs, whether or not they have an emotional or behavior disability, and those behaviors disappointingly lead to law enforcement response rather than a supportive response through appropriate accommodations. Schools have consistently chosen policing over the implementation and expansion of mental health resources that support our students. That's the next step. We have to demand more transparency. The Department of Education is solely, to, is solely to blame, but they're not really solely to blame for us not seeing the data now. Many states and large school districts also lacks transparency in publishing this data, and that's in violation of federal law. Now, as a community, and as parents and as school board, what information do you ask for? Every district should have already posted the data in their school and district report cards for the school year. We must get that information. There's a lot to talk about. When kids 
are engaging with police officers disproportionately. Starts in elementary school, middle school, and high school. And with black boys, now we're, it's kind of concerning because we know that when black boys leave high school and they enter into the world, into the adult world, they encounter the same officers, the same police officers in the street. And our young men and women have been witness to the execution of black men unarmed by law enforcement officers in this country. The question is, as parents, as community persons, how can we prepare and support and train our children to know what their rights are in public school? Do they have a right not to be engaged with law enforcement? Do they have the right to call their parents? Do they have a right not to be searched? Do they have the right not to be interrogated, not, not to provide information against themselves? Any engagement that a person in elementary school, middle school, or high school has with law enforcement, there's a possibility that they will be detained, arrested, and handcuffed and given charges. These are some of the questions and these are some of the situations that we must entertain in our individual communities. Every school district should report and have data every year on the number of engagement episodes, the number of arrests, and the number of referrals that happen within that school district. Without that information, there's no transparency, and there's no accountability. And the cycle continues. We also must pay close attention to the psychological trauma that is being experienced by our young persons, particularly our young boys, as they entertain themselves with the visual image of themselves being shot and killed unarmed by law enforcement. As individual citizens and as black folks in America, we understand the history. We understand the challenges of being discriminated against and denied our basic civil rights. It is more evident today than it's ever been. The country is divided, and it's divided by race and political party. We have half of this country that's in support of black folks being denied full access to their voting rights. That is where we are at in this country in 2021. We have law enforcement officers who are digging in. 99% uh, of police officers who have murdered black men who are unarmed have not been prosecuted and found guilty in the code of law. So what we have is a legal system, a criminal justice system that's reinforcing and supporting law enforcement officers who have taken the life of unarmed black men. The trust level of black folks, and particularly low-income folks, there is no trust for law enforcement. 
research has proven, and you can research it yourself, in every major city, the police department have targeted low-income communities and communities of color to police. And as a result of over-policing and the stopping for minor traffic violations, and and, um, what you have is you have a situation where there's a letter of the law and there's spirit of the law. And you have police officers that's fully aware of giving tickets with a high, you know, a high price on it to low income and to unemployed persons that they are unable to pay. And often that simple charge leads in, into a bench warrant, leads into um, going to jail, leads to the situation where a lot of young men who are charged with crimes have not been proven guilty of a crime, cannot afford an attorney, and because of the brutalities and the violence that's allowed in detention centers and jails and prisons by the government, that for survival they are forced to plead guilty to a charge that they're not guilty of because the choice is assault and violence in prison or to admit to guilt to get out. That is a very difficult decision to make. And there's, there's no winning choice in that. So when you're poor and when you're black and when you're targeted by the police, um, it's just a bad situation. And so a lot of young black men, low-income black men, undereducated black men have become the victims of the system. The cash bail system is implemented to deny you freedom to keep your job and to walk around Uh, so you can prepare a defense for the charge that a police officer in conjunction with the prosecutor has placed upon you. We must have these conversations about law enforcement and about policing and look for some solutions that will benefit the majority of us, not a few of us. Now in our community, uh, we have a class system so when you talk about violence and police against black men, the, the low-income black men, the black men that are living in the low-income communities, that being over-policed, they don't have a voice. You have another group of black men, I guess about 5% of the pop- population, they live in other places, and they run in different social circles, and they have different relationships with the same folks that inflict this pain and injustice upon us, and they dare to make to deal or to negotiate our rights and they're not living our experience. So you must understand that if you're part of the 5% or the 10%, as they say in the black community, your son, your daughter, you have the resources to get an attorney. You have a resource to get them out of jail. You have the resources to talk to people in high places to get a deal. You have a network that you develop through your professional career and, and, and through your um, <clears throat> status as a liaison between the two communities. And some of you folks are being financed by poor black people, so I'm not calling no names on that. But that's why some of the problems we're having with um, resource officers in schools and law enforcement officers in our community is that 
Some Negroes and some black men in particular, they have been insulated from this reality. They have adapted over the years a different view of the reality of being a black man in America because they have crossed over. They have changed their language, they have changed their dress, they have changed their values, and they have transitioned into being um, an African-American in a white community. And they have given themselves an orientation that they know how to pacify, they know how to dance, they know how to shuffle, they know how to grin, and they can survive fairly well. But brothers, you are needed to be a voice for us brothers who don't have those skills. So we must always make decisions as for the betterment of the 90%, not necessarily the 10%. Um, This is not something that I made up. This is history. Uh, There's always racism, and we're at the bottom, and so we are the victims in that situation. And there's classism based on education and job skills and that type of thing. So therefore, then there's sexism. So you have women, and particularly black women, that you know they have to get a job out of every dollar. They only get about 65 cents. And so then as a race of people, uh, we have subgroups. So we have the church and we have the unchurch. We have organizations. And so we get to a point where everybody is, um, everybody wants to be a leader and everybody wants to speak for the community. But in, in essence, the reality of it is every leader of every organization is speaking for the membership of the organization. Um, they're not speaking for the community. Does that make sense? If you're a pastor, you're speaking for your congregation. If you're a member of fraternity, you're speaking for your, your fraternity brothers. Um, if, you're, if you're with the NAACP, you're speaking for the membership of the NAACP. So we have a situation in our community where we have various leaders representing various groups. And then the majority of people are not in any of the groups. So I guess the thing that we should try to do is empower people who are not in any of the groups to get into that network, that political network, that social network, that economic network, to empower people so they won't be victims when folks come campaigning about representing them. Education is necessary for any movement, for any group of people. Anything that you want to advocate for, somebody somebody has to be trained, somebody has to study, somebody has to transfer situations and ideas and outcomes and that type of thing. So the reason I'm having this conversation is because we cannot sit back and not address law enforcement and violence directed towards black men. I can tell you some of the things that happened in the past that we know doesn't work. Um, Getting a black chief of police doesn't change the police culture and doesn't change the policy and practices of over-police in our communities. Getting a black sheriff does not as well. What brings about a change in law enforcement and violence against black men? If you're in the city, black men in particular, and women should be organized to demand that there's a citizen review board, 
and that the city council persons uh, dictate to the police chiefs what kind of policing they want and who, what community to leave alone and quit using poor communities to generate revenue. So how do you generate revenue in poor black communities? Well, you tell your cops to go over there to stop cars or do speed traps. And any seasoned police officer can, can stop anybody, anytime, anywhere for a supposed traffic violation. And that traffic stop is how they initiate their policing. So through that traffic stop, they can visually see things, they can ask questions, they can intimidate. And nobody is relaxed when a blue light is on and somebody comes decide to ask you a question with a gun and a badge and which you have the potential of being killed or to be handcuffed or your freedom taken away. That's not a fair exchange. That's, that's not a good interaction. And most black men try to avoid that situation. So I just want to have a conversation to talk about these things from a perspective of the bottom up versus top down. Now, the higher you go, I guess the more material things you have to lose and the more uh, relationships you have to lose. But from the bottom up, we're just trying to get some justice. We're just trying to be left alone. We're trying not to be harassed and, and, and given high price tickets uh, is to finance the law enforcement and we don't want our lives taken. We want, we want to live a life that we don't have to fear seeing a police car. And these folks are being paid with our tax dollars. I just want to share that conversation with you. We, uh, I love you enough to tell you the truth. And I respect you enough to give you the facts. And so, you have to look at, at law enforcement starting very young. Um, research has proven that little blacks, boys and girls are traumatized and that they fear police officers. And in, and in public schools, I want you to think about this for a minute. Part of controlling and giving an orientation to and manipulating our minds is subjecting our children at a young age to a level of control that is not conducive to healthy emotional development. No elementary school child should have to walk around elementary school talking to a police officer. No middle school kid or high school kids should be free from exposure to potential loss of freedom, to being charged, to being detained and being questioned by a law, law enforcement officer. Our public schools should be safe places for our children. They should be a place where our kids can live, learn and grow and explore themselves, express themselves and, and challenge authority in appropriate manners but become critical thinking. So the, the policing of our children is not good for the emotional health and the self-esteem of our children. The gun and the badge in the black community is a symbol of oppression. Um, don't get it twisted. We are not the dominant society. And a lot, I know a lot of us have that integrationist mindset, but you know, parenting for black kids is different than parenting for white kids because there's, there's so many barriers and, and so many opportunities for loss of life and incarceration for young black kids that as parents, we, we have to have a different approach to educating our kids about the history of America and about being a patriot 
and about your civil rights and about your human rights. This is real. And so I apologize if I've offended anybody. I apologize if I said something that you didn't know, but I want you to research it and I want you to protect your children. Um, the truth of the matter is that we are failing our children in public education. School board members in particular, parents, community persons, and the upper class in our community who have the knowledge and have the understanding. And taking care of your own children is not enough. You must be called to take care of the children of the folks that you know that don't have the, the intellect you have or the awareness of the system. And you know that the system is corrupt, that it violates our human rights, our civil rights. And 85% of our children being undereducated and not prepared for adult life to maximize and to start their own families. And so we cripple our children when we sit back and just tolerate injustice on every level. And I think as fathers in particular and mothers, we should challenge ourselves to recommit to parenting and what it means. It means being supportive, it means providing and protecting on all levels. And so our kids can grow up and they can be the same type of parents that we are and protect the next generation and the next generation. I'm your host, Kenneth Martin Sr. I love enough to tell you the truth and I respect enough to give you facts. I hope that I've said something to inspire you, to give you information. Maybe if it's, if it's um, a form of agitation, maybe it would motivate you to research and get some information for yourself. Everything I say is not true, but all of it is true until you research and prove it otherwise. So I'm your host, Kenneth Martin Sr. I believe that God has given us the power and the knowledge to achieve what we're working for and what we're praying for. It matters not the situation. It matters not the opposition. We will prevail. We will experience victory because God is on our side. Now, we can pray until we faint. God is not going to drop anything out loud. Uh, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. There's a few things that uh, we need to do. And we need to start out being better parents, better, uh, better citizens, community persons, being informed citizens, getting registered to vote, join organizations, challenge the status quo, ask the right questions and challenge your leadership, and make sure that your best interest is always on the table. I'm your host, Kenneth Martin Senior. I've enough to tell you the truth, and I respect enough to give you the facts. Until next Monday night, you pray for me, and I pray for you. And let's build the wall of protection and love around our children. If you don't know what that means, get your Bibles out and read Nehemiah. And let's research the building of the wall and the purpose of the wall. And we need to do that for our children, our family, and our community. So until next time, peace be unto you. And may you be strong enough in your self-assessment to forgive yourself. Because God has already forgiven you. So his mercy... And his grace is already upon you. Hello and welcome to the voice of the people. I'm your host, Kenneth Murray Sr. I love enough to tell you the truth and I respect enough to give you the facts. I want to thank you for joining us this evening. Um, it is our intent to give you information 
to have a conversation, uh, talk about stuff other folks don't talk about it. We feel that the yoke has been broken on this end, and so we dare to tell you the truth and give you the facts. This show is sponsored by Myers Law, Attorney Catherine Myers at 803-250-1176. She specializes in criminal law, so if you need to get lawyered up, you call the Legal Eagle at 803-250-1176. I want to talk to you this evening about something that's very important. As we witness every day violence towards black men, it's being inflicted by police officers. So we understand the history of this. We understand that we're the victim of this, and we understand that we need criminal justice reform. But I want to take it down a level, and I want to talk about our children. I want to talk about policing schools. They continue to target black, brown, indigenous students with disability. The data has proven this. Across the country, communities are pushing their schools to divest funding from police and reinvest those funds in student mental health care and other supportive services. But in making their case in their respective school boards, these parents, students, and advocates, and ministers, and community leaders, they run into one significant barrier, outdated data and transparency in policing in schools. Every other year, the Department of Education collects and eventually releases to the public data that shows the number of student referrals and arrests made by police, including resource officers, we call them SROs, in public schools and which students are most impacted. This data includes the student's age, gender, race, and whether they have a disability. Time and time again, this data has shown students of color and students with disability are disproportionately referred to and arrested by police in school. The data also includes staffing data detailing how many counselors, social workers, school psychologists, and nurses are in school compared to law enforcement officers, which we call school resource officers. This data is crucial for understanding how police in school have fueled the school to prison pipeline. All this is a powerful situation that needs to be talked about. The Department of Education has been collecting arrests and referral data for the last 10 years through the Civil Rights Data Collection. A collection may have administered since 1968. You can get that information if you so desire by using the Freedom of Information Act. But let's talk about the impact of policing on our disability, our disabled students, students of color and disabled students of color. If historical trends in the data hold true, law enforcement in schools will continue to disproportionately target students of color and students with disabilities and students of color with disabilities. Black students and students with disabilities have often had to attend schools with fewer resources and support and school staff that are often not adequately trained are staffed to accommodate children with disabilities. 
When there are no other support staff to address behavior problems, some teachers request help from law enforcement. This is where things often go wrong. Policy schools do what they're trained to do, to detain you, to handcuff you, and to arrest you. Past data analyzed by the ACLU shows that schools with police reported 3.5 times as many arrests as schools without police. Just as with the concentration of policing in low-income communities of color, policing in schools is also racialized. We took a report, it's called Cops and No Counselors, and we analyzed the data. We found that students of color are more likely to go to a school with a police officer and they're more likely to be referred to law enforcement and more likely to be arrested at school. On the national level, black students are more than twice as likely as their white classmates to be referred to law enforcement. Black students are three times as likely to be arrested as their white classmates. And in some states, black girls are over eight times as likely to be arrested as white girls. This is a problem in our community. What makes a child most likely to be targeted by a police officer while in school? That's a good question. Well, simply by having a disability. Overall, students with disabilities were nearly three times more likely to be arrested and referred than students without disability. This is bad. If a child has a disability, and they're also a student of color, the odds are even far worse. For instance, in Rhode Island, Native American students were referred to law enforcement at a rate five times that of the national average. Black and Latino boys with disabilities represent only 3% of students nationally, but they account for 12% of school arrests. Black boys are more often labeled as emotionally disturbed or simply bad. When non-compliant behavior occurs, whether or not they have an emotional or behavior disability. And those behaviors disappointingly lead to law enforcement response rather than a supportive response through appropriate accommodations. Schools have consistently chosen policing over implementation and expansion of mental health resources that support our students. the next step. We have to demand more transparency. The Department of Education is solely to is solely to blame, but then not really solely to blame for us not seeing the data now. Many states and large school districts also lack transparency in publishing this data. And that's in violation of federal law. Now, as a community and as parents and as school board, what information do you ask for? Every district should have already posted the data in their school and district report cards for the school year. We must get that information. There's a lot to talk about. When kids are engaging with police officers, disproportionately, it starts in elementary school, middle school, and high school. 
And with black boys, now we're, it's kind of concerning because we know that when black boys leave high school and they enter into the world, into the adult world, they encounter the same officers, the same police officers in the street. And our young men and women have been witness to the execution of black men unarmed by law enforcement officers in this country. The question is, as parents and community persons, how can we prepare and support and train our children to know what their rights are in public school? Do they have a right not to be engaged with law enforcement? Do they have the right to call their parents? Do they have a right not to be searched? Do they have a right not to be interrogated, not, not to provide information against themselves? Any engagement that a person in elementary school, middle school, or high school has with law enforcement, there's a possibility that they will be detained, arrested, and handcuffed and given charges. These are some of the questions and these are some of the situations that we must entertain in our individual communities. Every school district should report and have data every year on the number of engagement episodes, the number of arrests, and the number of referrals that happen within that school district. Without that information, there's no transparency and there's no accountability. And the cycle continues. We also must pay close attention to the psychological trauma that is being experienced by our young persons, particularly our young boys, as they entertain themselves with the visual image of themselves being shot and killed unarmed by law enforcement. As individual citizens and as black folks in America, we understand the history. We understand the challenges of being discriminated against and denied our basic civil rights. It is more evident today than it's ever been. The country is divided and it's divided by race and political party. We have half of this country that's in support of black folks being denied full access to their voting rights. That is where we are at in this country in 2021. We have law enforcement officers who are digging in. 99% um, of police officers who have murdered black men who are unarmed have not been prosecuted and found guilty in the code of law. So what we have is a legal system, a criminal justice system, that's reinforcing and supporting law enforcement officers who have taken the life of unarmed black men. The trust level of black folks, and particularly low-income folks, there's no trust for law enforcement. Research has proven, and you can research it yourself, in every major city, the police department have targeted 
low-income communities and communities of color to police. And as a result of over-policing and the stopping for minor traffic violations, and, and um, what you have is you have a situation where there's a letter of the law and there's a spirit of the law, and you have police officers that's fully aware of giving tickets with a high, you know, high price on it to low income and to unemployed persons that they are unable to pay. And often that simple charge leads in, into a bench warrant, leads into um, going to jail, leads to the situation where a lot of young men who are charged with crimes have not been proven guilty of a crime, cannot afford an attorney, and because of the brutalities and the violence that's allowed in detention centers and jails and prisons by the government, that for survival they are forced to plead guilty to a charge that they're not guilty of because the choice is assault and violence in prison or to admit to guilt to get out. That is a very difficult decision to make and there's, there's no winning choice in that. So when you're poor and when you're black and when you're targeted by the police, um, it's just a bad situation. And so a lot of young black men, low-income black men, undereducated black men, have become the victims of the system. The cash bail system is implemented to deny you freedom to keep your job and to walk around uh, so you can prepare a defense for the charge that a police officer in conjunction with the prosecutor has placed upon you. We must have these conversations about law enforcement and about policing and look for some solutions that would benefit the majority of us, not a few of us. Now, in our community, uh, we have a class system. So when you talk about violence and policing against black men, the, the low-income black men, the black men that are living in the low-income communities, that being over-policed, they don't have a voice. You have another group of black men, I guess about 5% of the population, they live in other places, and they run in different social circles, and they have different relationships with the same folks that inflict this pain and injustice upon us, and they dare to make to deal or to negotiate our rights, and they're not living our experience. You must understand that if you're part of the 5% or the 10%, as they say in the black community, your son, your daughter, you have the resources to get an attorney. You have a resource to get them out of jail. You have the resources to talk to people in high places to get a deal. You have a network that you develop through your professional career and, and, and through your um, <clears throat> status as a liaison between the two communities. And some of you folks are being financed by poor black people, so I'm not going to call no names on that. But that's why some of the problems we're having with um, resource officers in schools and law enforcement officers in our community is that some Negroes and some black men in particular, they have been insulated from this reality. They have adapted over the years 
a different view of the reality of being a black man in America because they have crossed over. They have changed their language, they have changed their dress, they have changed their values. And they've transitioned into being um, an African-American in a white community. And they have given themselves an orientation that they know how to pacify, they know how to dance, they know how to shuffle, they know how to grin, and they can survive fairly well. But brothers, you are needed to be a voice for us brothers who don't have those skills. So we must always make decisions as for the betterment of the 90%, not necessarily the 10%. Um, This is not something that I made up, this is history. Uh, There's always racism, and we're at the bottom, and so we are the victims in that situation. And there's classism based on education and job skills and that type of thing. So therefore, then there's sexism, so you have women and particularly black women that, you know, they have to get a job out of every dollar. They only get about 65 cents. And so then as a race of people, uh, we have subgroups. So we have the church and we have the unchurch. We have organizations. And so we get to a point where everybody is, um, everybody wants to be a leader and everybody wants to speak for the community. But in, in essence, the reality of it is Every leader of every organization is speaking for the membership of the organization. Um, they're not speaking for the community. Does that make sense? If you're a pastor, you're speaking for your congregation. If you're a member of fraternity, you're speaking for your, your fraternity brothers. Um, if, you're, if you're with the NAACP, you're speaking for the membership of the NAACP. So we have a situation in our communities where we have various leaders representing various groups, and then the majority of people are not in any of the groups. So I guess the thing that we should try to do is empower people who are not in any of the groups to get into that network, that political network, that social network, that economic network, to empower people so they won't be victims when folks come campaigning about representing them. Education is necessary for any movement, for any group of people. Anything that you want to advocate for, somebody somebody has to be trained, somebody has to study, somebody has to transfer situations, ideas, and outcomes, and that type of thing. So the reason I'm having this conversation is because we cannot sit back and not address law enforcement and violence directed towards black men. I can tell you some of the things that happened in the past that we know doesn't work. Um, getting a black chief of police doesn't change the police culture. It doesn't change the policy and practices of over-police in our communities. Getting a black sheriff does not as well. What brings about a change in law enforcement and violence against black men If you're in the city, black men in particular, and women should be organized to demand that there's a citizen review board and that the city council persons uh, dictate to the police chief what kind of policing they want and who, what community to leave alone and quit using poor communities to generate revenue 
So how do you generate revenue in poor black communities? Well, you tell your cops to go over there to stop cars or do speed traps. And any seasoned police officer can, can stop anybody, anytime, anywhere for a supposed traffic violation. And that traffic stop is how they initiate their policing. So through that traffic stop, they can visually see things, they can ask questions, they can intimidate. And nobody is relaxed when a blue light is on and somebody comes and asks you a question with a gun and a badge and which you have the potential of being killed or to be handcuffed or your freedom taken away. That's not a fair exchange. That's, that's not a good interaction. And most black men try to avoid that situation. So I just want to have a conversation to talk about these things from a perspective of the bottom up versus top down. Now, the higher you go, I guess the more material things you have to lose and the more uh, relationships you have to lose. But from the bottom up, we're just trying to get some justice. We're just trying to be left alone. We're trying not to be harassed and, and, and given high price tickets uh, is to finance the law enforcement and we don't want our lives taken. And we, want, we want to live a life that we don't have to fear seeing a police car and these folks are being paid with our tax dollars. I just want to share that conversation with you. We, uh, I love you enough to tell you the truth and I respect you enough to give you the facts. And so you have to look at, at law enforcement starting very young. Um, research has proven that little black boys and girls are traumatized and that they fear police officers. And, and in public schools, I want you to think about this for a minute. Part of controlling and giving an orientation to and manipulating our minds is subjecting our children at a young age to a level of control that is not conducive to healthy emotional development. No elementary school child should have to walk around an elementary school talking to a police officer. No middle school kid or high school kids should be free from exposure to potential loss of freedom, to being charged, to being detained and being questioned by a law enforcement officer. Our public schools should be safe places for our children. They should be a place where our kids can live, learn and grow and explore themselves, express themselves and, and challenge authority in appropriate manners but become critical thinking. So the, the policing of our children is not good for the emotional health and the self-esteem of our children. The gun and the badge in the black community is a symbol of oppression. Um, don't get it twisted. We are not the dominant society. And a lot, I know a lot of us have that integrationist mindset. But, you know, parenting for black kids is different than parenting for white kids because there's, there's so many barriers and, and so many opportunities for loss of life and incarceration for young black kids that as parents, we, we have to have a different approach to educating our kids about the history of America and about being a patriot and about your civil rights and about your human rights. This is real. So I apologize if I've offended anybody. I apologize if I said something that you didn't know, but I want you to research it. And 
I want you to protect your children. Um, the truth of the matter is that we are failing our children in public education. School board members in particular, parents, community persons, and the upper class in our community who have the knowledge and have the understanding. And taking care of your own children is not enough. You must be called to take care of the children of the folks that you know that don't have the, the intellect you have or the awareness of the system. And you know that the system is corrupt, that it violates our human rights and our civil rights. And 85% of our children being undereducated and not prepared for adult life to maximize and to start their own families. And so we cripple our children when we sit back and just tolerate injustice on every level. And I think as fathers in particular and mothers, we should challenge ourselves to recommit to parenting and what it means. It means being supportive, it means providing and protecting on all levels. And so our kids can grow up and they can be the same type of parents that we are and protect the next generation and the next generation. I'm your host, Kenneth Martin Sr. I love enough to tell you the truth and I respect enough to give you facts. I hope that I've said something to inspire you, to give you information. Maybe if it's, if it's um, a form of agitation, maybe it would motivate you to research and get some information for yourself. Everything I say is not true. But all of it is true until you research and prove it otherwise. So I'm your host, Kenneth Myers Sr. I believe that God has given us the power and the knowledge to achieve what we're working for and what we're praying for. It matters not the situation. It matters not the opposition. We will prevail. We will experience victory because God is on our side. Now, we can pray until we faint. God is not going to drop anything out loud. Uh, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. There's a few things that uh, we need to do. And we need to start out being better parents, better, uh, better citizens, community persons, being informed citizens, getting registered to vote, join organizations, challenge the status quo, ask the right questions and challenge your leadership, and make sure that your best interest is always on the table. I'm your host, Kenneth Martin Senior. I'd love to tell you the truth. And I respect enough to give you the facts. Until next Monday night, you pray for me and I pray for you. And let's build the wall of protection and love around our children. If you don't know what that means, get your Bibles out and read Nehemiah. And let's research the building of the wall and the purpose of the wall. And we need to do that for our children, our family, and our community. So until next time, peace be unto you. And may you be strong enough in your self-assessment to forgive yourself because God has already forgiven you. So his mercy and his grace is already upon you.